But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless. Hearing the voice, but seeing no one, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias. Come in and lay his hands on him so that he might, rega- he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call in your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Thank you, Andrea. Good morning, church. It's good to see everyone. And, you know, Friday night, I, I got a phone call, and it's one of those calls I don't like to get. Um, and uh, it was uh, Ann Givens and our, our brother Jay. Um, he hasn't been able to be with us much the last couple of years because of COVID and his vulnerability, but she called to tell me that Jay had passed away. And... Um, and I, you know, my mind just went back, I think it was probably eight years ago when, when Jay first came into the service and you know, I met him and, and we started talking and at the close of it, uh, we set up lunch and then over the next many months we met on a regular basis and, uh, because he just had so many questions about spiritual matters and his spiritual life and, you know, and just getting to walk with him and see God do a work in his life and open his eyes and bring him into the family of God was uh, just uh, you know, a wonderful uh, honor. Uh, and so, you know, immediately when I got that call, I thought back all the times that we've spent together and then the times that he has been in groups and discipleship groups with uh, so many of you and he's grown and just watching him grow over the last eight years in his faith, 
Um, and then to get that call, as sad as it is, but then to know that our brother is in glory and he's reunited with a daughter who preceded him that he was always so, uh, you know, uh, thinking about. Just, uh, it, it blunted the grief to know that uh, we don't grieve as others who don't have hope. And, uh, and, that, and that kind of leads me to this idea of, of faith stories. You know, one of, that's one of the things I just enjoy about being a pastor uh, is, is getting to do that with people uh, who have these kinds of questions or, you know, uh, get, going to have lunch with somebody. Maybe it's a newcomer to our church and we go out and we have lunch. And one of the questions I'll ask them is to hear their story. And, and as they will tell me their story about coming to Jesus and, and, and coming to know him as Lord and Savior. And when that happens, it immediately does a couple of things. You know, it establishes a deep kinship. Uh, just, just very, very quickly, because we now have something that is in common that is eternally based. We are eternal brothers and sisters in Christ. We have something of internal significance that we can relate to, no matter what part of the country or our backgrounds or our skin colors or any of the other demographic things that might separate us. We have commonality at the most important area of life that there can be, right? And that's one thing. So it immediately allows, it lays a framework for us to have a relationship. And then the other thing it does for me is it just inspires me to worship God. As I, as I continue to hear stories and see how God works in people's lives, and he does it so differently, you know, and, and, and how he works and moves in one person's life compared to how he moves in another person's life and, and the way he just arranges things and to, to bring people to faith. It's just inspiring to hear these kinds of stories. And so as we come to Acts chapter nine, I bring that up because we have probably the most famous story of a personal conversion in the history of humanity. I mean, this story is the story of personal conversion in the Bible that everybody kind of thinks of, right? This is the story that has inspired plays and movies and dramas and certainly any number of paintings from artists. My favorite one, I can't show you because it's copyrighted, but if you Google, and feel free to do so while I'm speaking during the boring portions of the sermon, right? If you Google Paul Rubens, R-U-B-E-N-S, Paul Rubens, not to be confused with Pee Wee Herman Rubens, Paul Rubens painting um, on the Road to Damascus. Paul Rubens painting On the Road to Damascus. Phenomenal painting. It'll take you to a wiki page kind of thing and you can see it. And, and just the way he captures the details and the conflict, I just love that painting. Uh, other paintings I don't, I don't really care for so much. For example, there's this guy, uh, Lucas Cronosh. Uh, no, excuse me, this one. Lucas Cronosh the Younger, he was very Germanic, as you can tell, and he has, uh, this is from the 1500s, he has Paul the Apostle as a German knight on a crusade in armor attacking a castle. Don't know how you get that out of Acts chapter 9, to be honest. <clears throat> very Germanic, right? Uh, but th this is a, a newer one, uh, newer in the scheme of things. This is the late 1800s. This is an Italian artist, Domenico Morelli. I really like this one, right? If you study that one, this is the conversion of St. Paul. Uh, and, and you just look at those details there. Um, it, it just really captures a lot of what happened on that day. 
the details that inspired these paintings, right? They're in this text this morning. However, this story, right, is so important to the Apostle Paul that he will refer to it numerous times throughout his epistles. The story is so important in church history that Luke will repeat it in Acts chapter 22 and Acts chapter 26 uh, through Paul's testimony when he is on trial for his life. And on those occasions, he's going to include details that are not in Acts chapter 9. And those details, they supplement the account that we have in Acts chapter 9. They don't contradict, they supplement. And so I'm going to pull in some of those details um, as we kind of pull out of this passage two very important gospel applications from the conversion and the story of Saul, whose name is going to be changed to Paul, the Apostle Paul, right? And uh, these, these gospel applications are so important, I think, um, we're going to actually take one at a time. One this morning, one next week, and each week they will be, the application will be our takeaway truth. So let's just start right there. This morning, first gospel application, our takeaway truth that we're going to just dig into, dive into this morning. True conversion stories glorify our Savior's sovereign grace and overwhelming love. True conversion stories glorify our Savior's sovereign grace and overwhelming love. The story starts with Saul right? We're being reintroduced to Saul. He's breathing threats and murder against the disciples. He's gotten permission from the high priest to go to Damascus to, to arrest the followers of the way. They're not called Christians yet. They're called the way, right? And, and so this is the guy, Saul. Who is this guy? Saul, right? Now, if you look at some of the the upcoming chapters, like the testimony in Acts 22, you realize some important things about him. He's a Hellenistic Jew. We've talked about Hellenistic Jews the last few weeks. Hellenistic Jews were Jewish people who were born, whose home was in another country, not in Palestine, not in Israel. Their parents, for one reason or another, maybe in past generations, were dispersed because of maybe a war or events that happened in Israel. They settled in other portions of the world, and they lived there. They were practicing Jews, but at some point, they came back, or they would come back and forth from their you know, their other nation and back and forth to Jerusalem or Israel to visit family or to, to participate in festivals. Uh, Paul was one of those, Saul was one of those guys. He's Saul of Tarsus. He lived in what we would call modern day Turkey, uh, Cilicia. He's a Roman citizen. He has full Roman citizenship. As a young man, as an adolescent, apparently his parents sent him to Jerusalem. And he begins to study and becomes, he becomes a disciple of one of the most prominent rabbis of that day. The man's name is Gamaliel. We've already been introduced to Gamaliel in our study through the book of Acts. We bumped into him in Acts chapter 5. When Peter and James, or excuse me, Peter and John were arrested and they were brought before the Sanhedrin and many of them wanted to imprison them and put them on trial and all this. And the, and the voice that they listened to that was the moderating influence on the Sanhedrin that convinced them to not arrest them and to not torture, persecute, maybe execute them was Gamaliel. And he was the one who said, hey, if this is of, not of God, this is going to fail. And, and we don't want, but if it is of God, we don't want to get in the way of this. And so he was the moderating, he was Saul's teacher. 
He was, the, he was the leader of one of two major rabbinical schools at that time, the Hillel school. He was the leader of it. And Saul, according to what we know from scripture and also from what we know, uh, we think from what we know from even history of that day was top of the class. He was his prime student. There's actually a record in rabbinical uh, records uh, from uh, in the 20 ADs, uh, about 25 AD period of a certain student of, of, of Gamaliel who was known for his oratory ability, his ability to argue, his zealousness. He exuded all of the qualities of what they were looking for. And he's referenced for his, even though he was young, how influential and aggressive and bright and keen his mind was and how righteous he was. And historians have often wondered, is that Saul? Clearly, from what you see in scriptures and the references that were made in scripture, he was known by the priest. He is already a rabbi at this time at a relatively young age. He is a member of the Sanhedrin. He is a voting member of the Sanhedrin. So he can vote to put people to death or not right? And to tell you how respected he is by the older rabbis and the political and religious leaders of the Sanhedrin, even though he's younger, he is entrusted by them to stamp out this uprising of this new sect of people who were following Jesus. He is the judgment arm of the Sanhedrin, the very powerful body in the nation of Israel. This is Saul. We're first introduced to him in chapter seven. And what do we see? He is at the execution of Stephen, the first martyr. And there he is holding the coats and the cloaks of the men who pick up the rocks and the stones and who kill that first Christian martyr, Stephen. And the scriptures say, Paul, or excuse me, Saul approved of that execution. And then the second mention is in chapter eight, verse three, and Saul ravaged the church. Now, word ravaged, used in secular Greek literature, was used of a, a wild boar who attacked a person and just destroyed his body, tore it up into pieces. In other words, Saul was going throughout Jerusalem in the Christian community and tearing it to pieces like a wild animal. And as a result, these Hellenistic Jews, they scattered, Right? And we looked at how Philip went to Samaria and others went to other nations, uh, maybe back to their homelands where they had been born. And the gospel begins to spread throughout the Mediterranean world. And apparently the fact that they get away from him enrages Saul, he's furious. And so he comes up with a scheme. And he goes back to these uh, religious leaders, the high priest, and he obtains from them what we would call extradition orders, right? He can go to these other cities, foreign cities, with extradition orders where these Christians who are Jews are worshiping in synagogues and he finds them and he arrests them and he, in some cases, tortures them, beats them, drags them back to Jerusalem in chains where they are put on trial and in some cases, they're executed. And you read in Acts chapter 26 in his testimony, his own testimony of these days, this is what he said to the king Agrippa, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. 
And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. In other words, I did everything I could to force them to recant. You can read between the lines. What does that mean, right? He hurt them, tortured them. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. This is what's going on in our text. When on this day, on the road to Damascus, with these extradition orders that he's carrying to go to the synagogues there to grab Christians in that city, he has this radical life-changing encounter with Jesus. And you see in verse 3, As he approached Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Or literally, he said, who are you, sir? He didn't know yet who he was talking to. And the man answered, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you're to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. Now let's be clear here. What Saul sees in that light is not a hallucination, it's not a dream, it's not a vision. What he and Cass happened to him is, was very similar to what happened to Stephen. If you think back to what occurred with Stephen near the end of his trial as he's about to be executed and uh, he's kneeling before his executors, the sky opens up and he looks up and Jesus appears and he sees him standing at the right hand of the throne of God. And you remember, he says, I see Jesus. I see the Messiah standing at the right hand of the throne of God. And he's so inspired and emboldened. He then turns and he prays and he says, Lord, do not hold the sin and the guilt of these men. Do not put the sin and their blood guilt against them. Forgive them from what they're about to do. Isn't it ironic that the, the persecutor, one of the persecutors of Stephen now has a similar event and Jesus speaks to Saul. The others can hear a voice and they know that they're hearing something, but they can't understand it and they don't see the person, but Saul does see and he understands that it's Jesus that he sees. Later when he's writing to the Corinthians and He's talking to them and he's trying to help them understand how important it is to the foundational truths of Christianity that Jesus literally, physically rose from the dead, that he is alive. In 1 Corinthians 15, he he says, you know, Jesus appeared to Peter and then John and the rest of the apostles. And then he appeared to 500 other uh, uh, disciples, many of whom are still alive. And then he writes this, he says, last of all, as to one untimely born. In other words, last of all, as to one who became an apostle under the (laughs) most strange circumstances, right? He appeared also to me. He's pointing back to this moment on the Damascus road. And just as Jesus did with the other apostles, Jesus reveals himself to Saul in this post-resurrection appearance. And in doing so, 
he proves to him once and for all his absolute deity and identity as the Messiah that had been prophesied and promised to the children of Israel for more than a thousand years. At that moment, can you imagine Saul's shock? Can you imagine how shocked he is? The very person that he is so ruthlessly opposed has now completely upended his entire world. In fact, he's upended his entire worldview. His entire worldview has just been turned upside down. In in an instant, he realizes that as this incredibly educated and respected rabbi, he is completely ignorant of what is actually true. (laughs) That as this very smug man who stood there and smugly condemned Stephen to death, he was actually guilty of an unjust miscarriage of justice. That this proud righteous, good Pharisee is guilty of numerous, violent, horrendous crimes and sins against innocent men and women and children. And most of all, he suddenly realizes, my fellow rabbis, We crucified our promised Messiah. We turned over to Pilate, the person that we have been looking for. We have blasphemed God himself by denying Jesus as Messiah. And he's alive. And these people that I have scoffed and laughed at and ridiculed and scorned and made fun of They're right. They've been right all along. And I've been wrong. His whole whole worldview, his whole world is turned upside down in a heartbeat. Can you imagine the range of emotions that Saul must have gone through over those three days? I mean, think about it. You're in a dark room, you're blind. (laughs) You know, he's not eating and drinking. Apparently they just took him, you know, something's happened here and, you know, let's... They put him in a room and they leave him and he's there by himself in a dark room. Can you imagine the range of emotions that are going through this guy over those three days? Those three very dark days, literally, because he's blind. How many times did he cry out? God, forgive me. What have I done? What have I done? Forgive me. How many times did he cry that out? How many times... Did he rejoice? How many times did he praise God? Yeah, he's physically blind, but spiritually, for the first time in his life, he now begins to see. He now begins to see the scriptures finding their yes and their amen in Jesus. How many times did he weep as passages like Isaiah 53, you know, 
passage that Philip, we saw last week with the Ethiopian eunuch. How many times did he weep when passages like Isaiah 53 or Psalm 23 ran through his mind? Passages that he had memorized from the time he was a child, they ran through his mind and now for the first time he can see that they're all speaking and finding their fulfillment in Jesus of Nazareth. And all the dots are finally connecting of everything that he has learned all of his life How many times does he weep at the humble realization that it all is embodied in Jesus Christ, this person who knocked him flat on his keister on the road to Damascus? (laughs) What were his emotions like? You know, some of you, you probably have no problem imagining what Saul experienced because your own conversion story With your conversion story, you have vivid emotions attached to it because there were vivid memories, maybe vivid events. When you came to Christ, maybe it it was so vivid, you know, you you had to pull it aside a road or it was in the midst of a deep, you know, life circumstance where you were brought low and and Jesus broke through and 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 to this very day you can you can see it in your mind's eye. It, it's just like Saul. And so you you have no problem imagining the emotions that Saul was having because you you had this this overwhelming sense of emotions that happened in your own life, right? And so you get it because your own conversion story has its own sense of the same. But you know, others, many of us, we don't have vivid emotions and vivid events attached to our stories of faith. I, I, I was five years old, sitting on the stairs back of Trinity Baptist Church in Jacksonville, Florida, Dr. Charles Schaefer. Do you remember his name? Because he was my principal and he had spanked me on more than one occasion. (laughs) Right? So, but vivid emotions, you're five. How do do we relate to Acts 9? Because I think a lot of us probably don't have vivid emotions and there weren't vivid events and there wasn't blinding light. There wasn't, you know, we weren't, You know, we weren't drug addicts that God just suddenly delivered us from. We don't have these massive stories to look back at. So how do we relate to Acts 9? Can I suggest to you that every conversion story, whether it is marked by vivid emotions and events or not, it is the same as Saul's story in the details that matter the most. Whether you have all kinds of vivid emotions and events or not, your conversion story in the the details that matter the most are the same as Saul's story, as Martin Luther's story, as John Calvin, any hero of the faith. They have common elements and it's here in this passage. And when we recognize those common elements, like Paul or Saul, we are then compelled to glorify our Savior and His sovereign grace and the overwhelming love that He has for us. Let's look at them. The first thing that is common to every one of us is you're going to find the planting of gospel seeds. The planting of gospel seeds. Chapter 9 does not come out of nowhere. 
Chapter, the, the story of Saul's redemption does not start in chapter nine. It's the culmination of a process. I actually fall, there's a debate. And I actually fall on the side of this debate where I, I personally believe it is a very reasonable supposition that the lives of Saul, the student of Gamaliel in Jerusalem in the 20s, between 20 and 30 AD, intersected with the ministry of Jesus. Um, I, I think that this is a very reasonable supposition and expectation that when Jesus was at the temple teaching in the weeks of festivals and things like that, that Saul very likely as a young man very possibly went to the temple at one of those times and heard Jesus, saw Jesus. Certainly as a student of Gamaliel and this era of time, he would have known of the man from Galilee. He would have known who Jesus was, at least by reputation, even if he had never seen him, even if he had never heard him teach, he knew what was going on about this guy, Jesus. He's in Jerusalem as a, as a rabbi and as a student of Gamaliel, he would have known about, the, all of Israel knows about this guy right? And John the Baptist and all the events. And seeds are being planted with what he hears there. And certainly a gospel seed is planted when he's standing there in the Sanhedrin and he hears Stephen preach that powerful sermon in chapter seven, where he starts with Adam and Eve and he walks them through the entirety of the Old Testament and redemptive history and concludes with that climactic exhortation of conviction to those religious leaders, showing them that they had crucified the promised Messiah and his name was Jesus. And Saul hears that sermon and the seed of the gospel is planted and then he sees Stephen die and how Stephen dies and the seed of the gospel is planted. And then in the successive weeks, as he arrests Christians and he, in some cases, tortures them to recant and they stand strong in the faith, the seeds of the gospel are planted in his life. So the story of Saul doesn't start here, okay? And if you think about your own life, the same thing happened. There were people who planted seeds of the gospel all along the way. Paul, Paul the apostle Paul, will tell the Corinthians, this is our story. One man will plant a seed, another will plant the seeds, others will water those seeds, and then finally someone else will harvest the salvation at the end. But it's a process of people being involved. And you had that. For some of you, it was Sunday school teachers like me from the time we were in the nursery. I got a text this morning early and it was my son, Jacob, and he and Jill uh, teach a two-year-old class like children like we do for Cove and, and whatnot during their early service. And, and, and he said, Jill, and they had Adam and Eve this morning and Jill was teaching them about, you know, how Eve and Adam and Eve, they ate the fruit. And then because they ate the fruit, they they had to die. And he said, dad, I, I now can't get this boy to eat his orange because he's afraid he'll die. <laughs> you know? Uh, so some of you are having a hard time seeing Jacob with two-year-olds, and I agree with that one. But the other part is seeds being planted. 
even in two-year-olds, right? And that's what we're doing in this church. We're planting seeds right now over in Sunrise Island and Covenant Cove normally, because they're not normally having Super Bowl games. And tonight when we have youth group, and, and that's what we're doing constantly. Seeds are being planted. All of us have experienced this. Secondly, you see the pursuit of our loving Lord taking place. This is, this is going on. Uh, certainly Saul understood this and Paul did. Later in Acts chapter 26, verse 14, there's a detail added that makes this very clear. He says, when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And now here's a detail that's not in Acts 9. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. Now that's a, that's a Jewish proverb at the time. And, and what, it mean, what it was referring to was the farmers had ox oxen, you know, and oxen could be very stubborn creatures. And so the farmer would want them to go in a particular direction and the ox would just stop and he wouldn't go. And so they had long, sharp sticks with a point at the end. And they would take that stick and they would jam them in the rear end to make them move. And they would jam them. And of course, an ox is a big creature. And oftentimes the ox would just think to himself, I'm bigger than that stick. And rather than move, he would kick up his feet and, you know, kind of like a horse, you know, buck back at the farmer. And he would kick him again, poke him again, and he'd kick his feet. And, and it was a test of wills, right? And the ox was being stubborn. And so this was an expression in the, the Hebrew world. Why are you being so stubborn and resisting what is so obvious to you? I've been making it obvious to you, and you are resisting in other words, in uh, Damascus Road, Jesus is saying to Saul, Saul, why am I having to do this? Why haven't you been listening to me? He has been already pursued by Jesus. He's been convicted already by Jesus. You know, was Saul's conscience already bothering him as he hears Stephen's sermon? And as he sees these Christians being, was this man who knows the moral law of God and he's immersed in the scriptures and the scriptures do not return void. Are they starting to convict him that what I'm doing, is this right? Is he having doubts and the Holy Spirit is convicting? No, I'm resisting. Some of you, this has been your story, right? You resisted and resisted and you resisted. And finally, when you, when you accepted the truth, you look back and you said, what took me so long? And here on the Damascus Road, it's clear that this inner conviction had been happening and Saul resisted. But what the Damascus Road illustrates for us is how God pursues. In this story, God is pursuing the pursuer, right? He's hunting down the hunter. He's making the persecutor miserable. And he won't leave him alone to the extent that he overwhelms the hardest heart with his lavish love. And later on, when he refers to us and our salvation, the apostle Paul says the exact same thing happens to us. He says in Ephesians chapter two, verse four, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him into heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What, Paul, what God did for Paul and Saul, the Lord Jesus did for us too. 
dead in our trespasses and sin, resisting any obvious conviction of the Holy Spirit, no desire to live for him and going our own way, what we thought was right, God in his perfect timing overcame all obstacles and lavished his love upon us, bringing us to life, helping us to see the beauty of who Jesus is and saved us by his grace. Not because of our goodness, not because of our righteousness, solely because of our grace. And why does he do that? Third common element in this story, in your story, is the predestinating grace of our sovereign God. He says in verse 15, remember, he's in the room, dark room, all by himself. The story shifts to this guy, Ananias. He's a disciple in um, Damascus. And God says to, the Lord says to Ananias, Ananias, I need you to go to the road straight. There's a man there by the name of Saul. I need you to help him out. And Ananias' reaction is, uh, not me. <laughs> Do you know who this guy is? I don't want anything. I need to get away from him. And then notice what the Lord says to him in verse 15. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Later, Saul, who now this time is the apostle Paul, will also recognize that this is true for him when he, when he reveals the story to the Galatians. He'll say to them, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, in other words, he who chose me before I was ever in the womb, he who predestinated, that's literally the word, he who predestinated me before I was in the womb and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Was it because of the righteousness of Saul? No, it was because of his pleasure, God's pleasure to choose him before he'd ever done anything right or wrong, to make him his instrument, to redeem him, to give him eternal life. And Paul will write to the Ephesians, the same is true for all of us. This is part of our story, that God chose us before the foundations of the world according to his love. He predestinated us according to the good pleasure of his will to be adopted into his family as sons and daughters, as co-heirs, brothers and sisters with our Lord Jesus Christ. It's part of your story, like Saul's story. And it's why you are a part of the family of God. Because God lavished this sovereign grace upon you solely according to his good will, not because you deserved it or I deserved it in any way. And certainly Saul didn't deserve it. A fourth element is this promised day of response and salvation. You see in verse six, the Lord says to him, rise and enter the city you'll be told what to do. And notice in verse eight, what did Saul do? Saul rose from the ground. And although his eyes were open, he saw nothing and he was led him, they led him by the hand and they brought him into Damascus. Saul attempted to overcome Jesus by force and with violence, but Jesus overcame Saul, not by force and violence, but by his grace and with his love and Jesus does the same thing 
for each and every one of us. And when Jesus reveals, revealed himself to Saul and he gave him spiritual eyes that could see and he gave him that heart that now was sensitive to who Jesus was and a mind who could understand that Jesus was actually the Messiah and God in the flesh, when that happened and Saul could finally perceive the overwhelming love that Jesus had for him and giving his life as a sacrifice for his sin, the only reasonable response that Saul could make, but it was the response that he freely made as an individual was to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. And that what he, in doing that, he did exactly what Jesus promised would happen to everyone who has this same mark set upon them by God. In John chapter six, Jesus says, those the Father has given me will come to me and I will never reject them. And this is the will of God. This, I, look at this verse. This verse is so powerful. And this is the will of God, that I should not lose even one of all those he has given me, but that I should raise them up at the last day. Do you see the significance of that? That if you are a follower of Jesus this morning. You may have all kinds of emotional, vivid memories and vivid emotions and events attached to your story of faith, or you may not. You may not even be able to remember the exact time when you became a Christian, but you just know, oh yeah, I follow Jesus, I love Jesus. He's my Lord and Savior. But regardless of, of what your experience was like, you, this is your story. These are the elements that actually matter. That the somebody planted the gospel seeds in your life. That Jesus pursued you and he did not let you go. <laughs> He's the hound of heaven. And when he gets his scent, when he, when he has your scent, he is gonna track you down and he does it, man. And he, he does all that because God out of his sheer grace and mercy decided to pour out his love on you before the universe was even created. He had you in his heart and in his love before he ever created the world. And then at the appropriate time, he brought you to faith. And Jesus said, you're now mine. And my love for you is so great that I am going to ensure that you will be mine until the day of, that everything is finished and I return in glory. I will not lose you. You will not send your way out of my family. You will not send your way out of eternal relationship with my heavenly father. I will not lose one who the Father has given to me. Let's bow our heads. I was just wondering. Actually, this morning, I woke up about four o'clock because a fifth common element popped into my head. 
As your heads are bowed, I want to ask it of you. The fifth common element is, with every story, there is a personal encounter. The personal nature of each encounter. If you're a child of God, if you follow Jesus, you have had a personal encounter of some kind. Maybe vivid, may not be, but of some kind. And so here's my question with our heads bowed and eyes closed this morning. Have you had a personal encounter with Jesus? Is he your savior? Is he your Lord? Right now, this morning, can you say honestly before God, I have confessed my sins that I am in need of a savior and I believe that Jesus is that savior and I have committed my life to him as Lord. Is that your personal testimony and encounter this morning? If it is not, I implore you that today can be the day for your salvation. In a few moments, Paxton's gonna lead us. We're gonna give you opportunities to share your testimony. But if that's not your testimony, I hope that at the close of the service, you'll come see me. So that today could be your day of salvation or maybe this week or next week as we meet over lunch. Lord Jesus, bless your word this morning. May for those of us who already know Jesus as Savior, may this morning's message remind us of how glorious you are and how much we magnify you and glorify you for the work of redemption that you've done in our lives. May we share this wonderful work of redemption with those who need it. And for the one who's here or maybe who hears me online, who doesn't know you, who hasn't had that personal encounter, may even today or this week be their day when like Saul, you finally hunt them down, you open their eyes, you remove the scales, and they see you for who you are, Lord Jesus. I ask this for their eternal good and your eternal glory. Amen.